Well, hello, Christ Chapel. You have no idea how much I have missed you lot. I really feel like if this were some sort of parable, I'm the prodigal preacher returning home. I, I was concerned slightly that all my years of hard work discipling your ears to the good Northern Irish brogue would be gone forever, taking a step back. So it's good to be back. Thank you for having me. As you well know, we're living in very, very difficult days out there. It's pretty hot out there, both, both literally speaking and, of course, spiritually speaking as well. I, I felt it a few weeks back. I did what I hadn't done in many, many years. I went out for a jog in that heat. I, I tell you, it was, it was time to start doing some exercise, or, or so I was told. And so I, I, my approach for the last decade had pretty much to follow my dad's advice. My dad's advice was simply this, son, when I feel the urge to jog, I lie down for a nap until the feeling passes. <laughs> I kid you not, that's been his advice, and so I chose to ignore it and went out for a 30-minute run, and how hard could that be? Well, it was hard. I didn't expect the, the heat out there to be so hot. Everything out there was working against me. It was brutal. Within a few moments, my, my mouth was crusting over dry. My, my legs felt like, like big, clunky tree trunks. My shoes felt like they were made of concrete. Every stride seemed to takes so long. The, the road was radiating heat up toward me, and it felt like every squirrel and bird in that little neighborhood was heckling me <laughs> in their little squirrel birdie languages, just mocking me. It was brutal. The whole out there was hot and, and mocking me while I was just trying to do the right thing and live a healthy life. I arrived home <laughs> what seemed like an eternal 15 minutes later. <laughs> Just an absolute sweaty mess. My face was beaming red. I couldn't cool it down. I was panting like a dog. I just, I was a broken man. <laughs> and I vowed never, ever, ever again to ignore dad's wisdom. <laughs> I don't worry, I survived, obviously. I, I realized a little later, once I'd cooled down, that my, my venturing into the big, bad, hot Texas summer world out there was, was a problem for me, really because of my naivete. I was naive. I didn't expect that level of heat out there, even though I knew it was hot out there. I, di I didn't expect that it could do that to me. I didn't expect what it would do to me. My expectations were off, basically. That was my problem. And because my expectations were off, I was ill-prepared for what came my way for those 15 minutes out there. I needed a hat, clearly. I needed sunglasses. I needed even a podcast to drown out my dad's voice, which followed me those 15 minutes. Told you, should have taken a nap. Told you, should have taken a nap. I was just ill-prepared, and, and I went essentially out into that environment undiscipled in the ways of Texas summer jogging. 
that should have known better. I tell you all that really by way of analogy because I believe that's how many believers enter into the out there of society, completely undiscipled in what they should expect to occur given it's so hot out there at the moment. You know it's, 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 it's an anti-Christian climate out there, spiritually speaking. And to enter into it the way you do enter into it every day of the week at home, at, at work, on whatever campus you, you, you visit, uh, you, you need to be prepared. You need to expect that what's going to come at you is hotter than anything that you expected to come at you. You need essentially to, to be able to, to live the healthy Christian life with, with a hat on and with, and with sunglasses on as you jog around there for Jesus if you want to survive, if you want to make sure that you don't head up on home a broken mess, vying to just maybe nap until Jesus returns. Frustrated, discouraged, silenced perhaps, even sidelined. That wouldn't be good. That's not God's call on your life. So my goal this morning, today, is to talk to you about what you should expect as you head out into the world to serve Jesus. Knowing what's coming as you jog around society for Jesus helps you prepare to jog well and to go right back at it all over again the next day. So if you have a copy of the Scriptures with you, please turn to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, I think there's a little incident in there that helps us understand what we should expect. If you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, there should be one around you, wherever venue you're at. Uh, turn to page 923, 923 in the, in the Bible that's available to you there. Now, this little scene in Acts 14, uh, verses 8 through to 20, is a fascinating little scene. In fact, it's, 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 an, it's a scene that is cast nearly mirroring an incident that's already happened in the book of Acts in chapter 3. Now, we've been going through Acts here, and it's been a while since we've been in Acts chapter 3, so at some point you might want to go home and check what's there. But, but this little scene mirrors that scene. And it's quite clever what God through Luke is trying to do. He's trying to communicate that what, what God does in a non-Jewish, pagan, Gentile, backwater village through Paul, God did in the main city of Jerusalem for Jews through Peter. That, that God is consistent in what He does in society and that you still today can expect God to function in that same way. And you can expect society to respond also in the way they responded in Acts 3, in the way they responded in Acts 14, and in the way they might respond in your busy next week. So it's beautiful what's going on there. I want to show you in this little passage really just five expectations. There are many, many more. There's more expectations out there, you know, in other portions of the Scriptures to prepare you. But, but this little passage presents five. Five expectations that you need to be aware of so that when you head back into society to serve Jesus, you're not caught off guard. You can jog around well. You can survive it for more than 15 minutes and that you may even want to go right back at it the next day. Knowing these expectations certainly doesn't lower the anti-Christian temperature out there. It doesn't take it away. 
It doesn't reduce the hostility. It doesn't lessen it. But it does give you a reality check. It does disciple you a little bit toward what it looks like to serve Jesus. It, it does essentially give you sort of like a little hat to wear and sunglasses to put on, perhaps a little podcast to hear as you, as you serve the Lord. It's, it's really relevant stuff. You, you've been in the book of Acts. You know how relevant the book of Acts is. We, we often look at stories in the scriptures and certainly historical narrative like Acts, and we see it nearly as a, as a window through which we can peer into a, another world, a distant land with distant people in a distant time. We, we look at it sort of like it's a historical text that, that sort of satisfies our historical curiosities, and it is that, but it's much more than that, because this isn't just a history book. This is the living Word of God. And so really, when we peer into these little scenes, we're opening a window, not into their world, but into your world, into your backyard, into the present day, to see your neighborhood and your workplace and your home as it responds to the spread of the gospel, and as some receive it and as some reject it. So all that said, let's, let's look at these expectations. They should be in your sermon notes. If you want to pull them out at this point, you can follow along. Five of them there. The first one, the first expectation is really this. Expect God's intervention in society. Expect God's intervention in society. You can expect Him to work today. You can expect Him to work this week. He wants to work in your workplace. He wants to work in your family. He wants to work in your neighborhood. And you can expect that. We're still in the same uh, age of history as the first century church in the book of Acts. We're in the same stage in God's program for the world. We're just a couple of thousand years down the line from, from where they're at. So we can expect him to do exactly what he was wanting to do with them. Look at verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting. Now Lystra is just a little town not far from Iconium, which is the previous town that Paul and Barnabas were in. And, and, and so at Lystra, there's a man sitting there. And, and that's not unusual, right? It's not a big deal. People sit all the time. Look at you. You're all sitting. You're not standing. Humans sit. We sit. But, but this, is, this is a different type of sitting. Look what it says. He was sitting because he could not use his feet. This man can't use his feet. The language that's there is quite interesting. It, it, the word we would translate as powerless, and it comes from the word dynamite. There's, there's, there's no dynamite in his legs. He's powerless. This guy's sitting because he can't get up. He can't stand. Verse 8 develops that a little bit more. He was crippled from birth. The phrase literally means that he was lame or crippled from, from the time when he was in his mother's womb. So he can't use his feet. He's crippled from birth, and we have it all over again in verse 8, and had never walked. Three times verse 8 tells you this man's sitting busy because he can't use his feet. Because he's never used his feet. Because the guy can't stand up. This guy has a problem. This guy has an unresolvable problem. This man can't walk, never has walked, can't ever walk 
if his life's trajectory thus far continues. It's a hopeless situation for this man. Can you imagine never feeling strength in your legs? Go ahead and flex your, your legs there, right, as you're seated. Can you imagine never being able to do that? Never being able to, to, to walk upright? Never being able to, to play a sport? Never being able to, to, I don't know, get yourself out of bed? Being reliant on somebody else to get you up and dressed, to get you out of the house, to take you to the restroom, to take you to see people? This is a miserable condition that this man is in, and that wasn't God's plan for his life. That's life in a fallen world that's rejected God. And so he's crippled and he's sitting there and his condition is horrible and he can't fix it. He can't do anything about it. He can't walk, but he can hear. Look at verse 9. He listened to Paul speaking. Paul is preaching the gospel, right? Remember, the book of Acts is the spread of the gospel. In Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas were commissioned by the church to go out and spread the gospel. So, so Paul is speaking, and in light of what we've seen in Acts so far, it's pretty clear that he's going to be declaring that there's a coming kingdom of God. It, it, it isn't here yet, but it is coming, and life in that kingdom is a life of human flourishing. Because God designed it that way. Because sins will be forgiven through the work of of the high king, Jesus. And as a result of that, human life will be able to flourish. The blind will be able to see. The deaf will be able to hear. The mute will be able to, uh, to speak. And the crippled will be able to walk. Jesus preaches that. The Old Testament preaches that. It's not surprising, really, that Paul would be preaching that. And, of course, it's not surprising that that man, aware of his crippled condition, is listening. He listened to Paul speaking, verse 9 tells us. And Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and he began walking. Beautiful. Remarkable. You think about it. This man has never walked. And suddenly he can walk. Paul detected the the type of listening that was going on in this little man in that audience sitting there in front of him that day in this backwater town of Lystra. He detected that in this man's inner being, he was connecting with that coming kingdom. He wanted what that Jesus had to offer. And without saying a word, his heart was saying, I want that. I believe that. That's for me. I was was made for that, not for this. And Paul, led by the Spirit, obviously sees that this man has faith, and God gives him the ability to, to speak a, a miracle into this man's life and, and, and give him the ability to, to walk again. From time to time in the ministry of Jesus and in the ministry of Peter and in the ministry of Paul, God allows the effects of the kingdom of God that's coming to be manifested and displayed in the here and now. It doesn't happen all the time. Everybody who's crippled or blind or mute doesn't suddenly 
be able to see or, or, or speak or walk. But from time to time, as part of an authentication of the truth and authority of the gospel, God allows some miracles like this to happen. And so it happened in this time. A little display of, of the gospel effects, a little foretaste of, of the kingdom that's coming. So what we have here is a beautiful little display of the work of the gospel in the life of a town which speaks of the work of the gospel in the history of humanity. Because that, that little man that's there really is a crippled humanity. That's you. That's me. That's society out there. We can't stand up straight. We're broken. We've been broken since we were in our mother's womb. And we can't fix it for ourselves. We need God to intervene. And God intervenes in this man's life. And this is a window that helps us see the intervention that God wants to do in society's life today. God wants to intervene and he uses his people as they preach the gospel. So we can expect God's intervention in society, in the lives of your loved ones, in the lives of your friends who perhaps at one point did join you, but have walked away. Don't ever forget that. God can intervene in their lives and is willing to do that. Expect it. Go out there and expect that God's going to do miracles in society when it seems like it's impossible. It's just too hot. It's just too hard. It's just too brutal. There's a second expectation I want you to see. And it's this, expect misinterpretation of God's work in society. You've got to expect that. You've got to expect that when you go out and share the gospel and spread the gospel, that, that society is going to misinterpret what that, mis, that, what that means. They're going to misread what God is doing. Look at verse 11. We have a little bit of an uh-oh moment here for for Paul and for Barnabas. Verse 11, and when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lycanonian, this is their original language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Now, those of you who know me know that I've, I make a big deal of Barnabas, right? I've written a book on Barnabas. He's kind of my hero. And so I, I want to pause there and really spend a lot of time showing you that, that Barnabas is the chief boss here. And, and really, that's all I can say. That's a little shameless plug for Barnabas. But I need to move on. Barnabas doesn't speak. Paul speaks. He's essentially Barnabas' representative. Verse 13, and, and the priest of Zeus whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer a sacrifice with the crowds. So these people completely misinterpret what happens. They heard the gospel, but they're taken by the miracle. And they interpret the miracle through the lens that's available to them to interpret that miracle. Now, before we're too hard on them, you've got to understand that these people are being consistent with the, the lens, their little pagan lens, their little superstitious lens through which they view life. They're being consistent. 
You see, they, they, they had their own pagan Bibles. They had their own pagan Bibles. Their own little stories that had been passed on down the line through history, through which they filtered reality and understood what was happening in front of them. They had a specific ancient story in Lystra, which you can read from the writings of a guy called Ovid, first century BC, long before Paul and Barnabas. They had an ancient story in Lystra. Uh, Let's call it a sort of a nighttime Bible story that they passed on to their kids. And that story spoke of the day when Zeus and Hermes incarnated themselves and came to town. Sort of their Christmas moment, figuratively speaking, of course. And, and Zeus and Hermes had come to town, and the only people that were hospitable to them was a poor couple who lived in a poor cottage, who fed Zeus and Hermes. And it was revealed to this little couple that, that these gods were there to destroy, to flood the area. But because of the hospitality of this couple, that they would be spared. And they were granted a wish. And their wish was, may our little cottage become a temple to Zeus. And may we, this couple, become the first priests in that temple. And may we die on the same day so that we never see the other's grave. And Zeus and Hermes apparently granted them that wish. So you can understand that when Paul and Barnabas show up in the town and perform the miracle that they've just performed, that the only lens through which they can read what's happened in front of their eyes and and try and interpret it is, the gods are back. Zeus and Hermes have returned. And we better be hospitable toward them and, and do our little sort of churchy rituals in the worship of them because if we don't, we might be flooded again. We might be punished All I'm trying to get you to understand is that these little lost pagans interpret their existence in light of the pagan Bibles that they have, but it's all they have. They have never heard the gospel. They have never heard the teachings of the scriptures. My point is not to preach ancient fairy tales, of course, but it's to get you to understand that that is the case today. Society out there views reality through the lens that they've only ever had. It's a very skewed lens with lots of weird filters from their secular Bibles. So expect them to misunderstand God's intervention in the world. Expect them to misunderstand what Jesus says about truth and sin and morality and marriage and identity and gender and sexuality and salvation in Christ alone through faith alone. I expect them to understand that. I actually have quite a lot of patience with the pagan unbeliever who's trying to understand their existence with only Satan's secular Bibles to filter reality through. My, my real angst and frustration is with the Christians who misunderstand views on human life and gender and marriage and identity when they have the real Bible, but they've been unwilling to submit all of themselves and all their quasi-semi-superstitious beliefs 
at the foot of the cross. Friends, expect misinterpretation of God's work in society. Don't be surprised, uh, as Peter says in 1 Peter, when when they misinterpret what it is you're proclaiming and live for. They've they've been conditioned by society in a certain way. That leads naturally into the third expectation. Expect God to intervene, remember. Expect them not to understand. But thirdly, expect confusion. Expect confusion on truth in society. Not just misinterpretation. Look at verses 14 and on, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, finally understood what they were saying, because remember, they're speaking a different language, and they're trying to process, oh my goodness, these guys are bringing out an ox and garlands, it seems, this is weird, it seems like they're heading to a worship service, oh my goodness, they're coming to us, they must think we're gods. When, when Paul and Barnabas figure out what's going on, they, they tear their garments And they rush into the crowd and they cry out and and we have a summary sermon as it were. Man, why are you doing these things? We're also men of like nature with you and we bring you good news. We bring you gospel. That you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and and fruitful seasons and satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Now, there's a whole bunch there. Let me give you the main idea of this sermon that these, they preach to this pagan people that don't have the real Bible, unlike the guys in the other towns and the synagogues. They essentially say, hey, hey, stop, we're not gods. We're like you. We're not a god. Don't worship us. And they proclaim the gospel, the good news, and it, it really comes down to this, that there's a living God. There is a living God, and that he is a giving God Look at the blessings he's given you. But he's also a forgiving God, and you need to repent. Verse 15 there is key. You should turn from these vain things. The word means vain or useless or worthless ways. Turn from that. That's a trigger that causes a lot of confusion. Because up until that point, they're heading to worship these guys in light of their fake Bible and the understanding of reality. And now this guy is saying, no, 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 no. You need to turn from that. You need to, the word is really, repent from that. You need to put all that stuff aside and turn to the God that we're proclaiming. And that creates confusion because that's going against everything they have ever known. It's a direct challenge to their worldview. It's it's, It's a direct challenge to their little nighttime, fake Bible, pagan stories that they've heard all their lives. It's central to the gospel, but turning to God away from what you were before God, standing up through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ when all you've ever known is being crippled, that, 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 that's, a, that's a difficult shift. 
It's a call to, re- to repentance. It's a call to, to turn to the real God, and that's going to be a direct challenge on society. And so verse 18, of course, uh, makes it quite clear that they're basically unable to, to, to shift this sort of societal frenzy that's set out on, on functioning in their own little worship services toward Barnabas and Paul. All I want you to see is that you've got to expect confusion on truth out there. You've got to expect it. They're just trying to make sense of their existence, and they've been brainwashed through Satan's secular Bibles, and our gospel challenges that. It calls it worthless. It calls all that they call some sort of human right and and my truth vain and useless to be turned from and to be submitted to the cross of Jesus Christ. It calls them to repent that they've been wrong, that they need forgiven. So expect confusion on truth. And of course, Expectation number four there in your sermon notes, it naturally flows from number three, which naturally flows from number two. Expect persecution in society as a result. You've got to expect persecution. You've got to expect resistance. You think you're going to go out into that world and not be resisted and not be rejected and not be either subtly dismissed or, or aggressively, you know, hunted? I don't know what Bible you're reading. That is the way of Christ in a fallen world until the coming kingdom of God is established in all its glory. Look at verse 19. The Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and they persuaded the crowds. So they stoned Paul, and they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. This, this, this crowd gets sort of ramped up through some agitators, some, some aggressive groups that come into town that have been tracking Paul, and they turn what was supposed to be a worship service into an execution. I mean, Paul goes from a god to, a, you know, a, 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 a convict, essentially, a, a criminal, within moments. That's how fickle society is. That's how quickly it'll change on you. I don't know if you've ever been hit on the head by a stone. I haven't. I was hit in the head by a rugby ball once, and it dazed me. Like It, it was like, oh, Lord, I'm ready to go home. It's time. I, I, it's just, I was like, Job, please. Can you imagine how brutal that was? I mean, so much so that they drag him out of the city because they think he's dead. He looks dead. There must be blood everywhere. He must, be, he must have lost his, his, his consciousness. Friends, you can't, you can't expect to go out there for a lovely little stroll in your neighborhood and not be persecuted if you're proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to society that doesn't want to turn, that wants to live according to their own little fake Bibles that wants to, now these days, construct their own truth that ultimately glorifies self. You challenge that, and you're going to get some stuff flung at you. Expect it. Don't be surprised, again, as, first, as Peter says in First Peter, when, when it gets hot. 
Don't be surprised when school friends and work colleagues and family members and, and school boards and, and the TV shows and social media resist and fight the gospel and pick you as the target for abuse. The gospel is a threat to what they're trying to preserve. So expect persecution. Lastly, number five, I love this one. Little tiny verse that kind of wraps up this little incident in a day in Lystra. Expect help in the church. Got to end on a positive. Expect help in the church. You can expect help and support from the people of God. This is your family. Gather with this family regularly. If you want to be effective in society. Look at verse 20. But when the disciples gathered about him or around him, he, that is Paul, rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. I'd love to camp out there. I don't really have the time to, but here's what I want you to notice. Who on earth are these disciples? Disciples is a key word for Christians, for the church, right? The church is in the building. The church is a people. It says here that the disciples gathered around Paul that day. Who are they? We know Paul and Barnabas were going around alone. John Mark left them. We know that Lystra has no gospel witness. There's not even a synagogue there. There's no God-fearers there. This is a completely pagan town. It seems to me that some did repent. In that little mob frenzy, some people who had heard the gospel did turn to Jesus Christ, did become members of this little birthing church, and did gather around to help Paul and Barnabas. Presumably, the crippled man is one. So we know of at least one. But here's the thing. In Paul's next travels, he goes back to Lystra where there's a little church. And, and so in this group, one of the converts at that time seems to have become, who we know as one of the greatest Christian men in history, a young man called Timothy. Timothy's a Lystran. Timothy must be part of this little group of disciples that gather around to help Paul when he's beaten up by society's rejection of the gospel. And because of that help, Paul gets right up, and I love it. He goes right back into Lystra. That's incredible. He goes right back into Lystra, and then the next day, he and Barnabas just head on to the next town, Darby, to share the gospel. I, I, I don't want you to miss what that little gathered disciples can do. It's, it's the sort of help that, that you will need if you represent Jesus Christ out there, and it's the sort of help that you're going to get in here. When it's hot out there, you need to regularly gather with the people of God in here because this is your family. This is where you're going to be refreshed, and you need refreshed regularly. It's where you'll get the encouragement to go out and jog again the next day. My time is up, my friends, but let me just close telling you that that's exactly what happened to me when I returned from my first eternal 15-minute jog in the Texas summer sun. Remember, I came back defeated. I had what I would call my 15 minutes in Lystra. I wasn't stoned to death like Paul. I'm not trying to minimize what happened to him, but I was a mess. A sweaty, 
mess, panting like a dog, remember a broken man, and I sat at the table vowing never to go back out there. I'm not doing that again, Lord. Dad was right. But remember James, my little son, the seven-year-old? You haven't heard of him in a little while. He was there. He was my verse number 20. The disciples gathered around him. As my head was sunk in my arms at the table, I was trying to catch a breath. I could hear him running around quite frantically. He was going in and out of the garage. He was opening, you know, cupboards in the kitchen. And I, I didn't lift my head. I was too tired. But I knew that something urgent was occurring. And he never said a word. And then, uh, without a word being said, I, I suddenly felt this cool flow of air blowing at me from a portable fan that he had set up and had plugged in and had sort of directed in my way. He was my gathered disciple. He helped me recover. He brought life back into my body. And you know what? I've jogged every other day since. I was ready to go right back at it. <laughs> That's the sort of loving and attentive help that helps. When it's hot jogging around out there for Jesus, and you can expect that it's going to be, you can also expect that you're going to be refreshed here so you get yourself right back here as often as you can. My twofold goal was to redisciple your ears to the good old Northern Irish brogue, and secondly, to disciple you to go out there and expect heat, but to do so prepared, knowing that God is going to intervene. And while the world misunderstands the gospel, is confused by it, and will persecute you for it. That's not new. That's the history of the church, friends. We don't have it any worse. But you can go out and proclaim the living and giving and forgiving God. Society needs that, and God deserves that from your life. Father, I thank you for your word. Once again, I thank you for allowing us to just peek into a little moment in history when you worked through Paul and Barnabas in a very distant land, in a very distant culture, and yet from it we see what's so relevant to our day. Help us to expect what they expected, not to moan and groan and take naps because we're fed up and wait until your return, but to go right back out there and to represent Jesus well, come what may, because society does need that, and the Lord Jesus Christ deserves to be proclaimed. In his name we've gathered, and in his name we pray, amen.